0: everybody who's joining uh, joining either on Facebook or after Facebook. Some people watch it live, some people watch it after. But good morning to you as well. And you missed the tea and you miss the Krispy Kreme donuts today. Um, but uh, welcome again to everyone. And um, we're going to wrap up today the series uh, called Gifted that we started. Wow, this is week number five uh, on this subject. And uh, boy, i, I if there's one thing that, that I pray that you get out of this, uh, it is that each of you have gifts, multiple gifts that God has given to you. He's not stingy. I've never met a Christian who has even just one gift. Uh, just about every Christian that I've talked to, if I have a chance to talk to them, they have at least three, at least three. And that's not including the... the the supernatural, spiritual, manifestational kinds of gifts that we talked about, okay? Uh, So my prayer is that you start using them. You start using them in your community, in your job, in your church, wherever you are, because there's a big, big need to use your your spiritual gifts, okay? Let me see if this works. Ah, it does. So last week, we covered uh, in some detail this thing of leadership gifts. And rather than to try and define what's an apostle, what's a prophet, what's an evangelist, what's a pastor, what's a teacher, we look more at what they're supposed to do to perfect, to prepare the saints for the work of the ministry, the work of service. It's true they're supposed to get up there and preach. They're supposed to plant churches. They're supposed to teach. They're supposed to do evangelism. Yes, yes, yes. We know that. But ultimately, if the leaders are not preparing people for works of service, all we're doing is stuff for ourselves. Okay. So the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry of the ministry. And we talked about four principles of ministry or service that'll work anywhere. They'll work in your school, they'll work in your your job, they'll work on your team, they'll work in your church, they'll work wherever you have people gathered uh, they're going to work and we talked about priority the priority of ministry church is not just church We don't just do church in a sort of ho-hum, you know, that's at the bottom of our priority list No, it's not just church and ministry is not just for church You should consider everything that you do ministry your your life should be considered as ministry You're not here to just punch a clock and then leave this world. God has a plan a purpose a pipeline he wants to put you through and the question is will you acquiesce to that in whatever you're doing doesn't matter if you like your job or you don't like your job you still have ministry that you can do there you still have ministry everywhere if you look for the opportunity so it's not just church and it's not just for church we actually talked about promptness and punctuality <laughs> as, a, as an important thing um, in your life, in church life and not in church life. And we talked about why that matters in a body. Uh, just, just to review quickly, what happens when your heart doesn't beat on time? And your heart decides, well, I'm just going to sleep in today and I'm going to be a little late. Even if it's just a little bit late, just a fraction of a second late, you've got big problems, right? So Paul uses the image of a body. We talked about preparation, being prepared for what you're going to do. Don't just show up at your job or your church or wherever and think that you can, by your talent and by your intelligence, fool everybody into, into thinking that you prepared when you didn't. Because if you didn't prepare... People will know you didn't prepare, right? And when you prepare, everything goes better for everybody else. Remember, it's a body, it's a team. And we finish with this idea of preferring others above yourself. Set up the thing so that the next person down the chain can run with it. Uh, Think of other people before you think of yourself and you will go far in life. You will see that these principles will work everywhere you go. So today we're going to conclude with what Peter says about spiritual gifts. Everything we've talked about so far is the apostle Paul. So Paul wrote to the church in Rome. That's Romans 12. We see that list that we looked at. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. We looked at that. Paul wrote uh, to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter four. We looked at that. And now we look at his his colleague, if you will, Peter, and what peter says and he 's got a little slice of information in First Peter chapter four. Uh, he wrote uh, two letters that we have, and first Peter is uh, written to to people scattered all over the the, the known world at that time in first in Peter chapter one, you see he 's writing to people who he addresses as strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. And so it's kind of a broad audience that he's writing to. And in chapter four, uh, he says this in verses seven to 11, the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. Just let that sink in for a moment. Therefore, be clear-minded so uh, and self-controlled so that you can pray. Uh, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And here's the gifts part. Each one of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do so as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with all the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, the power forever and ever amen. He continues his thoughts. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. So these are this written to scattered believers who are being persecuted. But the first part of the little paragraph there is key. The end of all things is near. So I want to talk to you about the gifts of God and the end of the world. Paul, Paul sort of talks about it a bit. I mean, some of his context is the end. Remember, he says, oh, he he says, uh, boy, I'm being distracted there. Okay. And at the end, he says, just mute the volume. Yeah, Jason will help you. Everything will be okay. Yeah, technology. Uh, So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish things behind me. Now we see dimly as in a mirror. Remember the image? They didn't have nice mirrors like we do today. They had pieces of metal that they would shine. And you'd see this rough image of yourself on the metal. It says, now we see dimly as in a mirror Then. We shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. He's thinking about the end of the world there. He's thinking about the coming of Jesus. He's thinking about the consummation of time. But Peter's even more blunt because he says the end of all things is near. The gifts of God and the end of the world. So what if we really believed that the end of all things was near? What if we really thought that that was true? There should be a mute button somewhere on there so you can mute the output. It's a little speaker sign. Well, you keep going. I'll let the sound guy figure it out. So I hear myself. So I feel like I'm like possessed or something. I know it's Halloween coming up and... You know, my past, it could be catching up with me. I'm not real sure. So what, what, what if we really believed that the end, that's better. What if we really believe that the end of the world was near? Come on. Do you really think about the end of the world? I know we talk about it in church. I know we say these things in church, but do you really spend any time thinking about this? Ask yourself the question. Do you really believe that Jesus Christ could come back at any moment? Do you really believe such things? I mean, there was a, there was a time, I sometimes joke about it, where, where the preaching was that Christians couldn't go to movies because the, the Jesus could come back the moment that you're in the movie theater. And if he does, you know, you'll hit your head off the ceiling. Like he won't take you if you're in the movie theater, that horrible, sinful place. Uh, And now, of course, we do church in movie theaters all, all around the world. People do church in it, you know. Either that's terrible compromise or maybe a better understanding of theology, right? But do you really think that Jesus Christ is coming back? Do you really think about this? Does it have any impact whatsoever on your life? Well, it had an impact on Peter's life. It had an impact on Paul's life because these people write... In that vein, in that, in that context, they believed that the end of all things, like everything was going to end. And Peter, if you read his letters, he talks about a new world. He says the whole, the whole present world is going to be torched and there'll be a new world, a new heaven and a new earth. And he talks about this over and over and over again to these believers who are scattered all over the place in 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Paul, he goes into great lengths talking about the end of the world in, in many of his letters. Uh, these people thought that it was going to happen in their lifetime. I mean, to them, it was a cl- they were anticipating the consummation of all things. They were anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. Are we? And we're 2,000 years later. Every once in a while, uh, you know, there's there's something that happens in our life that maybe jogs us a little bit, and we, you know, our, our life sort of flashes before our eyes, and we think, wow, you know, that was a close one. Uh, I have a, a person, a volunteer at the mission where I work, a couple of days a week, and she had a very severe car accident uh, this week. She passed out at the wheel, and uh, woke up and had destroyed her car and uh, crashed into, I think it was a tree or a pole, the airbags deployed. I mean, it's amazing that she didn't lose her life and didn't kill anybody else. Amazing. But every once in a while, we have these things that, pooh, they, they kind of shock us and, and wake us up to reality. Uh, I have been watching uh, the the World Series. Of course, you know that I'm a fan of sports and like baseball, so I've been watching the World Series. And, I'm very nervous, you know, and my family has to deal with me sitting in front of the television screen. And yesterday, the good guys lost and the bad guys won. And so it's two to two. Uh, But there was a moment that took place. Let me see if it works here. Is it working? Oh, you see it here. Let me go back. Yeah. Let me go back again. Oh, yeah, there you see it. So, So that guy is throwing 98 miles an hour. That's fast. 98. And he almost dings Ryan Zimmerman, one of the good guys uh, in the head. They call that being beamed when you get hit in the head. And if he were to have gotten hit there, his career may have been over. Okay. That's 98. That's nothing to trifle with. And you see how he kind of dives out of the way, like where did he get those cat-like reflexes, right? There are several articles in the sports news about what he did next as he lied on the ground and contemplated his life flashed before his eyes. You know, that the end of all things is near. I mean, he realized, boy, that could have been, that could have been the big one right there. Um, And when that happens in a baseball game, everybody just stops. And especially if they actually do get hit. I've seen people get hit in the face, in the head, in the helmet. Uh, I've been watching the game for 40 years. So I sit in front of the television, and if they're winning, I don't move. Because if I move, I may jinx it, right? (laughs) If they're losing, I'll work on my sermon, because they're losing. So last night, (laughs) I said, just work on the sermon, because there's nothing to watch. So we'll see what happens tonight. But he's one of the good guys. And, you know, and we almost lost them. Okay, Uh, all all joking apart, uh, do we really believe the end of the world is near? Well, Peter did. And Peter is talking about, okay, if you believe that the end is near, here's a few suggestions uh, for you. So his context is what we call eschatological. That's a fancy word. It means the end. eschatology is a study of the end of time. And so this is the context with which he's writing. It's really the context of the whole New Testament is eschatological. So so he, he gets into a few little suggestions, but I want you to frame them with under the umbrella, the end of all things is near. Your life, your stuff, your money, your family, all of it is going to end. All of it. This world, the security that you have, everything you know, it's all going to go away. God is going to completely transform. He's going to judge this world, and he's going to completely transform everything in in a cataclysmic, apocalyptic event the likes of which this world has never seen and never will see again. This certainly is what Peter believed. I'm not sure if we do or we don't today, but this certainly is what Peter believed. If Peter were alive today and Paul were alive today and they could somehow see us in the 21st century, I think they would get very, very excited, but probably very, very nervous at the same time. Wondering why we're not as excited as they were. Wondering why we're not, as, uh, we're not anticipating like they were seeing how far along we are compared to them, 2,000 years removed from the death and resurrection of Jesus. The end of all things is near. So what does he say? Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Remember Jesus, when he was facing the, the, he knew he was going to face the cross and he goes off to pray and he takes, I think it's Peter and John and James. And he says, what does he say? He says, watch and pray. Watch and pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray. It's kind of the same sentiment. Clear your head and uh, be self-controlled so that you can pray. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to distract you. There's going to be a lot of things going on that are going to push you away from that. You need to be self-controlled and you need to clear your head because your head's going to be cluttered with all kinds of things that are going to prevent you from calling out to God. That's 2000 years ago. Imagine what it's like today. I mean, we have more excuses than ever. We've got more things going on in our heads than ever, ever before, because we have so much information overload. Are we still praying? He says, you be clear-minded. you be self-controlled so that you can pray. And he says, above all, Remember, Paul says, now I will show you the most excellent way. And he talks about the way of love in 1 Corinthians 13. So here, Peter says, above all, love each other deeply. Why? Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Just we need to stop there just for for a moment and consider what he is saying there. Um, the, the word for cover over there is uh, a word that means conceal, uh, almost like to hide, to, to cover over, to, to shield. And what's he saying? He says, you, you above all things, and he's talking to a community of believers, he says, you love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Let me tell you what I have seen in, oh, I guess it's around 20 years of ministry, 30 years of being a Christian, uh, pastoring in two churches now, but I preached in many churches, uh, maybe about 30 of them across Canada, a little bit of ministry overseas. You see the same thing, doesn't matter where people are. Let me tell you what I have observed for some reason, and I, I have a theory about this, but for some reason I find that within the community of faith, we're a lot quicker than we should be to pull the trigger on another believer. We're a lot colder than I'm comfortable with. We're a lot more quicker a lot quicker to to judge someone's motivations, to attack someone's personality than we should be. Because according to Peter, he says, you got to remember that love, the love that we are bound together in through the blood of Jesus, love covers over a multitude of sins. So I've had people who, who you know, they've got an issue. Usually it happens like this. Someone is having a fight with somebody else in the church and they come to the pastor <laughs> and they say, pastor, this person did not to me. This person said this. This person didn't say this. And if you lower the boom on that person, that person will listen. Right? So the first thing that I say to that person is, hmm, have you prayed about this situation? Have you brought this situation to God? Sometimes they have, sometimes they haven't. If they have, then I, then I ask them the next question. Have you talked to the person about the issue? They say, "Excuse me, that's why I'm talking to you, Pastor. So you will do it." So, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. So, have you prayed about it? Yes, I prayed about it. I said, "So what happened?" Well, you know, I still I'm upset and this and this. I said, "Okay, have you talked to the person?" Well, no, I don't want to talk to the person, Pastor. I can't talk to the person. I'm afraid of the person. The person's intimidating. The person's this. The person has a better job than me. The person's better looking than me. The person's this. The person's that. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't come and talk to me until you go and you talk to them. Do you know who said that? That's Jesus. That's the way of Jesus, right? But this is what I find. So quick to pull the trigger. And a lot of times it's, you got upset at that. You, that bothered you? Like, are you sure that in the context of love one another, the end of the world is near? Are you sure that that's an issue for you? Like, are you really sure you want to go down that road? You really think that that person had bad motives there? Do you really think that they intended to hurt you there? Why don't you try giving them the benefit of the doubt rather than being so quick to say they did this pastor and they did that and they didn't do this and they didn't do that. But I find there's a real quickness to to make a character judgment and a personality assassination against somebody. And And a lot of times it can all be covered. It can be absorbed in the banner of, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're the church. The end of all things is near. Love one another deeply. Can I just tell you married people or people in a a relationship, you're a sinner and so is your spouse. Do you know what God did when he put you together? He said, we'll take two sinners and put them together. See if they can make it work in me. Because that's an illustration of the church. So let's see if they can make it work. It's an illustration of the church. Have you ever expected perfection from your spouse? Like is your spouse God? Do you do you do you bow down and worship your spouse? Oh, worship your spouse, all glorious above. Do you ever do that? No. Why? Because they're just as imperfect and beat up and broken as you are. But at, over time, you start to say, well, you know, but love covers over a multitude of. They don't cut their toenails right, and they don't brush their teeth right and they snore and they, I don't like the way they eat, I don't like the way they chew, I don't like the way they sniffle. You know, after a while you say, yeah, but is that really something that, because when you point the finger, you got how many pointing, three pointing back at you? So, uh, but I find there's a quickness to pull the trigger. And what, what Peter is saying is, You've got to remember love covers over a multitude of sins in the body of Christ. When you pray it through, a lot of times I find when you pray it through and you take the thing to God, a lot of times it just dies. Sometimes there's a point where you have to go to the person true. And Jesus said, you go to the person just between the two of you. You're not on the phone. You're not on social media. You're not on your blog, you know, trolling this person. No, you go just between the two of you. The words still apply today. But a lot of times in the household of faith, wow, we need to be a little less cold. You know, Jesus warned people, Matthew 24. He said, the love of most will grow cold because of the increase of wickedness. It will grow cold. That's primarily to believers. Don't let your love grow cold. It covers over, it conceals, it, 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 it absorbs a multitude of sins. Then he says, uh, uh, and by the way, here, I'll give you, I'll give you back Paul's, um, Paul's list there. Remember from 1 Corinthians 13, what love is and what love is not. Again, he's not talking about romantic relationships necessarily. But you see the not love side there on the right, you know, easily angered. Unforgiving—that's that's the stuff that we need to caution against, especially within the household of faith. We need to be very, very careful that we're not really walking in the not love side. Uh, and so he says, Off, "Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling." Remember, the end of all things is near. Have you ever been, been the recipient of hospitality and then the person offering it grumbles? well come on over to my house for supper don't eat too much you know that that's kind of what he that's kind of what he's saying well you know I'll take you out for lunch but you're paying you know like offer hospitality without grumbling because remember the end of all things is near there's not going to be any moment for hospitality anymore so we need to make the moment count Offer hospitality without grumbling. And then he gets into the gifts. And he says, again, under the banner of the end of all things is near. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Just say it to yourself. The end of all things is near. Faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. So he says, if anyone speaks... He should speak as if he's speaking the very words of God Himself because the end of all things is near. You make that moment count. If you're using your gift, you make it count because there's going to come a time where it's gone, where everything's gone, where everything is going to go, make it count. Uh, the end of all things is near. You speak as if you're speaking the very words of God himself. If you're, if you're speaking to children and you're teaching kids, you, you teach them as if you're, you're teaching them the very, very words of God himself. If anyone serves, he should do it with all the strength that God provides. Uh, there's, a, there's a man in this church, I don't want to embarrass him too much, but he's helping to serve. Uh, on, on Sundays when the service is over, he helps, he helps put the gear away. And this guy, I'm telling you, has, he, he has shoulders that are strong. And he can take these lights with one arm and he can put them underneath the bar and behind that screen with one arm, ministering in all the strength that God has provided to him. You know, and those skinny guys like me say, oh boy, you know, that's, that's impressive brother, you know? So you, you, with all the strength that God, you make that moment count. You strumming your guitar, you strum it with all your might. That's what he's saying. He said, you make it count if you serve with all the strength that God provides. Why? So that he may be praised. So that people will look and say, ah, forget about the person. Look at the person's God. It's that person's God who makes them tick. You see? Because the end of the world is near. So forget about the person. The person, yes, fine. They're talented, whatever. We're but look at their God, you see, and that's what he's trying to get people to focus on so that God may be praised through Jesus. To him be all glory, all power forever. Amen. Like we call that a doxology. So he's, he's saying, use your gifts in the context of the end of the world. So three little, three little principles for you there. There is a demand for spiritual gifts. I am not of the opinion uh, that the spiritual gifts are dead. I am not a cessationist. There's a large, large uh, theological movement within Christendom that believes that the gifts of the spirit have ceased and they're my brothers and my sisters in Christ. Absolutely. But I I disagree wholeheartedly. I am not a cessationist. I believe that the gifts of the spirit are alive and well today and we need them more than ever before because the time is really, we're in a time. Do you know what I'm saying? We're in a time where we need God to show up through our lives. We're, We're in a time where people who profess to be followers of Jesus need to be showing it they need to be showing it in the way that they live in the things that they say but they need to show it because the world is watching and quite frankly they're not very impressed most of the time with the church but a lot of that is because we've got it we've got to be who God called us to be and when when we do that people will stand up and take notice there's such a demand For the gifts of God today. And I I don't believe in any way that they have ceased to exist. I think that God wants to manifest them so that he can show people that he's real. There is therefore a responsibility that we have. So he says you're you're a steward. You you steward the gifts of God. He gave you a gift. He expects you to be responsible with that gift. What did Spider-Man say? with great power comes a theology in Spider-Man. Okay. The, the, that's, that's Hollywood nonsense. But, but there's some truth in there in spite of it. The power of God rests within you. The gifts of God rest within you. You have a responsibility to administer them, whatever the gift is. It's not even the issue what the gift is. The issue is, are you administering it? Because remember, the end of all things is near. So there is a demand. There is a responsibility. And for heaven's sake, serve with passion. I mean, this is what the world wants to see. Like, do, you, do, do these Christians really love their God? Do they enjoy worshiping their God? Do they enjoy serving their God? A lot of times that passion and that authenticity is more important than what you're saying or what you're doing because they see you really believe this. You really have a passion about this Jesus that you claim to worship. Wow. And they scratch their heads and say, that's impressive that you have that passion. Because that, that sticks in people's lives. But if you have no passion, I mean, if God's giving you gifts and you have no passion to use those gifts, I mean, what a tragedy that is. Use them and use them with passion. Whatever that gift is, it's, if it's pressing a little button, you press that button, say excellence. You make sure that button is pressed and it goes right every single time. Because God is praised through the pressing of buttons. He is. I have never seen or felt the presence of God more vividly than visiting people in hospitals. I believe that Jesus walks around in hospital wards through, through the lives of people who have enough guts to visit people who are in pain and share with them the love of Jesus. I mean, that is an unseen thing that people do. But that, that, my friends, that, 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 this is what the world needs to see, is people who are actually passionate about their Jesus. And I know in Canada, it's hard because <laughs> we're not passionate about anything. We're not passionate about politics. We're not passionate about the price of gas. I mean, we're not passionate about anything. We're so, so chill in, in Canada, all right? It, that's okay. That's Canada. But man, be as passionate as you can, even if you're chill. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you need a little bit of US in you, okay? The US, they're passionate about all the wrong things, but goodness, at least they're passionate. You know, vive Donald Trump. You know, we'll see what happens to the poor guy. But, but <laughs> I'm all over the place. I'm just, I'm just saying, folks, the world is crying out for Christians who will use their gifts with passion. And sometimes you'll make big, big blunders. You'll make big mistakes. That's, that's not the issue. Are you faithfully administering God's great gifts? I'd like the band if they would come back to the stage at this time and they're gonna play in the background and we're going to uh, celebrate communion together. And uh, yeah, you would go ahead and put that output back on and you take over, outstanding. I think you're all right there, and uh, I want to um read to you as they begin to play. I often pull this out when we when we celebrate communion together um, it, uh Peter's letter to the these people is uh, a fascinating study because um He talks about these believers in 1 Peter chapter 1 who were scattered all over the place. And uh, he named some places, Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, Bithynia in particular, interesting. And the reason why it is, is because the earliest reference that we have that is not from the Bible not written by a Christian, in fact, it's written by a person who's opposed to Christianity, it happens to be about the believers in Bithynia. It is the earliest non-Christian reference to Christians and to what they believed and to what they did. And it is written uh, by a governor, and his name was uh, Pliny. And uh, in about the year 110 A.D., after the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and the city was sacked and burned, etc., there was an emperor post-Nero. His name was Trajan. And Trajan, um, he deployed this man, Pliny, who was an experienced administrator as the governor of a disorderly province called Bithynia, to whom... uh, Peter addresses his letter. And this is south of the the Black Sea in that time. And uh, a few years later, Pliny, he writes back to the emperor Trajan and he writes to Trajan about these Christians as they were called. And uh, there was an unsigned paper given to him that had the names of many of these Christians and when he found out who they were he threw them in prison but he had several questions what am I supposed to do with them how do I try them well how should I punish them Uh, uh, should the young be punished as severely as the old What about those who renounced Jesus? Should I pardon them? And he writes to the Emperor Trajan asking for advice. The year is 112 AD. And uh, the movement, uh, the church had taken a big hold in the region. Pliny complains that there's many of every rank and men and women are involved in this thing. It's spreading like a disease. Uh, not only the cities, but the villages were affected by this disease of Christianity. Uh, so powerful had the new movement become that the temples where, uh, where people had worshiped other gods had become deserted. Those who sold food for the animal sacrifices hadn't been able to find any buyers. The early church was rocking the province of Bithynia because of these passionate believers. And his letter to Trajan shows that the movement wasn't altogether new. Because some of the people who he had arrested had renounced Christ some 20 years earlier. Which would put Christians in Bithynia in the year 80 AD. uh, Perhaps some even earlier. And it's interesting that Peter writes to these believers in Bithynia probably around the year 60. And you see how the, the movement, how the church spread so, so, so quickly. And this is a little bit of, um, of Pliny's letter to Emperor Trajan After he interrogated these, these Christians who, you know, this disease that was spreading through Bithynia. And he says this, They maintained, however that the amount of their fault, these Christians, or their error had been this, that it was their habit on a fixed day to assemble before daylight and to recite by turns a form of words to Christ as to a God and that they bound themselves with an oath not to commit any crime, not to commit theft or robbery or adultery, not to break their word, not to deny a deposit when demanded. And after this was done, their custom was to depart and to meet again, to take food, but ordinary and harmless food you may be reading there an ancient reference to what we're about to do an ordinary harmless food and these early christians they would get together before daylight they would have a form of worship there they would recite these words of worship to Jesus as if he were a god again this is a non-believer writing they would bind themselves to a certain lifestyle a certain moral and a certain ethic because of their relationship with Jesus they would leave they would come back again and they would have this ordinary harmless food (laughs) and Pliny is scratching his head saying what in the world do I do with this nightmare with these people with this disease and the disease carries on 2,000 years later. Isn't that amazing?